the National Archives podcast series, The Day That Parliament Burned Down, presented by Caroline Shenton. So the day Parliament burned down, I'm really pleased to be doing this at the National Archives for a number of reasons. I used to work at the National Archives in the 1990s, for most of the 1990s in fact, and um, it was there that I got my first taste of the fire of 1834 at Parliament. Uh, but then I forgot all about it, and it was only when I moved to the Parliamentary Archives in 1999, deserting the National Archives, sorry, um, that I discovered um, that my first task in the search room was to tell readers uh, that all the records, or nearly all of the records, of the House of Commons had been destroyed in this tremendous conflagration in 1834. And I got absolutely fascinated by it. I didn't understand why I couldn't find anything out about it other than the same paragraphs in books about the new palace. And I gradually started to collect material about it um, and put it in a drawer. And then eventually, about three years ago, I discovered that I'd probably got enough material to write a book. So uh, that's what I started to do. I wrote a book. Um, and um, like I say, my, my interest was first kindled here at, at the National Archives. And as we go through this talk, you'll see what effect this fire actually had on the history of the National Archives itself. But let's just start off um, with um, a little bit of orientation for you around what the old Houses of Parliament looked like. So this is what the Houses of Parliament looked like just before the fire in 1834, rather different from what we see today. This is the view looking north, as if you had your back to Millbank, for those of you who know um, Westminster. This is Old Palace Yard in 1834. This is the House of Lords here. Uh, this is a frontage that's been put onto the old medieval building at the end of the, 19th, end of the 18th century to make it look more regular and even. It's very unpopular. It's known as the cotton mill or the gentleman's lavatory. It doesn't go down at all well uh, with the public or with the press. Uh, it's thought to be a very ugly part of the building. Uh, this part of the building is the Commons Committee Rooms, and on the top floor, Bellamy's, the refreshment department of the House of Commons, the, the tea rooms and the restaurants. And this is the royal entrance, built by John Soane in the 1820s, where the king would come in to open Parliament. And just at the back there, you can see the south gable of Westminster Hall, hidden, buried inside the, the, the new frontages. This is the view from Westminster Tube Station. Um, so um, on the right here, um, you can see Westminster Abbey very, very close to the palace itself. This block here is the old law courts. Um, the Palace of Westminster had been a royal palace since the, uh, the 11th century. It had gradually grown over the centuries and had loads of different bits added onto it. But it was always the centre of the law courts. Wherever the king was, that's where the law was issued from. Um, and um, from about the 13th century onwards, Westminster Hall itself became the location for the law courts like the Court of Chancery and King's Bench and so on. And then in the 1820s, again, John Soane built this big block on the front of Westminster Hall to house the new law courts. This is the north end of Westminster Hall here. And these um, offices here are the offices of the Exchequer, so that's letter code E uh, in the National Archives, um, and that is where the Exchequer was based um, for a long period of its history. So Parliament, Royal Palace, Law Courts and Government Departments all based at Westminster in this building that's grown over time, higgledy-piggledy, no longer fit for purpose by the time that we get to 1834. This is just a view, a cross-section through, to show you how chaotic the building had actually become. 
Originally, the royal apartments within it were incredibly glamorous and well laid out, but over time, corridors, staircases, extra bits and bobs had been added on, and you can see the uneven floor levels um, of, the, of the palace itself. Um, this, in fact, was the old chapel of the house of, um, the, sorry, of the um, Palace of Westminster. And um, you can see here, this is the House of Commons chamber. What happened at the end of the 17th century was that Christopher Wren uh, built a floor in at this level and a ceiling in into the chapel to make it more enclosed for the House of Commons, who'd moved in there um, in 1548. So this itself is the Commons chamber. If you're a woman, you can only view proceedings in the chamber by going up into the attic and standing around this octagon, peering down through the windows onto the MP's feet to see what's going on. And this year is the 200th anniversary of the assassination of Spencer Percival, the only Prime Minister ever to have been assassinated in this country. Um, and he was assassinated here in the lobby to the House of Commons. That's what the inside of the House of Commons looked like. So a very small wood-panelled box. The MPs are getting very, very fractious about their accommodation just before the fire. Um, they're complaining desperately um, about the conditions in which they have to work. It's horribly hot and stuffy um, in debates. Um, there's condensation running down the walls because there are so many people packed in there. Um, and there are two big uh, debates in 1831 and 1833 um, looking at whether Parliament should move away from Westminster altogether and certainly whether the House of Commons chamber should be completely redeveloped, whether the building should actually be rebuilt out towards the river um, because at, the, at this time there is no embankment along the Thames. There are simply gardens beyond those windows at the far end. There are gardens and then a, sh a shoreline leading down to the Thames. And the debates are led by Joseph Hume, a radical MP. He doesn't get his way, but on the night of the fire, the 16th of October, 1834, a wag in the crowd is heard to say, Mr Hume's motion for a new house is carried without division. <laughs> so what caused the fire? Well, <clears throat> does anybody know what these are? Tally sticks, they all chorus. Excellent, well done. Okay, E402 here at the National Archives, and this is where I first became interested in the fire, or first heard about the fire. Uh, in 1995, I catalogued the TNA's collection of tally sticks, and um, if you look in the, uh, the long catalogue, the long printed catalogue, the introductory note is by me. It's anonymous, but it is by me. Um, and... Um, at the end of the note, there are two, a couple of sentences that say, and of course it was tally sticks that caused the destruction of the old Palace of Westminster in 1834. So I wrote that in about 1995 and then forgot all about it. And then it came back to me again in 1999. So how does a tally stick work? Well, for those of you who don't know, these are records of the Exchequer. If you're a sheriff in the Middle Ages and you're collecting taxes in your county... Um, you go along to the Exchequer at Westminster twice a year, Michaelmas and at Easter. You hand over the bag of money that you've collected during that six-month period. And the Exchequer gives you a tally to show what you've paid in. So it's a, it's a piece of wood that's been shaped on four sides. And it's got notches in it. You can just see some notches here. And the notches indicate the amount of money that you've paid in. Um, and it's also written on along one side to show the sum that's been paid in, and then the tally is taken and split vertically down through the notches. You take away one half, and the exchequer keeps the other half, and the idea is that it's an unforgeable receipt for what money's been paid in, and it means that the sheriffs can't come back in another six months and say, 
oh, I actually paid an extra £5 than what you're telling me because it's proved by the tally. And you can match up the tallies so you can see whether they've been forged or not. Okay, so that's tallies. Um, in 1834, this system had become obsolete. Tally cutting actually was abolished formally by statute in, in 1783, but it wasn't until 1826 that the whole process actually stopped because the post holders who were in post in 1783 lived on until 1826 and they had to be kept in jobs. Um, and so it wasn't officially until 1826 that the process stopped. And the leftover tallies, they'd been destroyed over the years gradually, um, the last batch of tallies, maybe the last 10 or 20 years' worth of tallies, uh, was stored in these offices here, the Exchequer offices, in, um, in the tally, the, receipt, the, the Exchequer receipt that was based there. Um, and it was decided um, in October 1834 to clear those out. They were no longer needed, they were obsolete. So I would describe this as a, the worst records management disposal decision in the history, <laughs> history of record keeping. Um, and um, the room was needed to create a new court of bankruptcy. There wasn't room in the law courts here for a new courtroom. So they were going to build it here and they needed the tallies out of the exchequer of receipt to make way for those. So um, the clerk of work at Westminster... Uh, the person in charge of the building, was given the task of getting rid of these tally sticks. So around the 14th of October, he decided that the best thing to do would be to put them into a huge bonfire here in New Palace Yard. Then overnight, um, on the 15th of October, he decided that, that would be a bad idea because um, burning them in the open air was going to attract huge crowds of people and it was going to cause a lot of annoyance to the neighbours because at the time, you can't really see it on this slide, there's a load of residential properties all around this area. It's actually a very cramped site indeed. You don't have Parliament Square there. Uh, you don't have the other squares that are there at the moment um, today. Um, so he made the decision instead that two labourers should burn them in the furnaces under the House of Lords chamber. And this is a floor plan of the palace, so we've just been looking at this space here. Here's the Exchequer offices. Um, and the decision instead was made to burn them here on the ground floor vault under the House of Lords Chamber, this is the Lords Chamber here, Westminster Hall here, Commons here, and another medieval building called the Painted Chamber here. So there are two furnaces underneath the House of Lords, which is on the first floor. Um, and the furnaces are used to, uh, to burn coal, and they're an underfloor heating system for the House of Lords Chamber. Uh, and there are two flues running up from the furnaces through the walls of the chamber, and then they're exhausting through the chimneys in the roof. Um, so at dawn on the 16th of October, two workmen start burning tallies um, in those furnaces under there. Um, and at the later public inquiry, they swear that throughout the day, they only put on a few sticks at a time. Uh, they were damping down the sticks with water. They were scraping out the ashes very conscientiously and carefully. But something must have gone horribly, horribly wrong because through the day, there's smoke in the chamber and a smell of burning. And... By four o'clock, things have become a bit drastic. The housekeeper of the House of Lords is showing two gentlemen tourists around uh, the Lords' chamber at four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, the, the palace was, like today, a great tourist attraction. If you came to London, you went to see Westminster Abbey and you also went to see the Houses of Parliament. So these two tourists are being shown round and they're very excited because they want to see these things on the wall here. These are the Armada Tapestries, one of the sights of London. 
Elizabethan tapestries celebrating the victory of the Armada. There are 12 of them in the House of Lords chamber, and they are, if you like, one, one of the big sights to see. Um, but they can't see them because there's so much smoke in the chamber that there's, they can't get up close and actually see the designs. They also go over to this area here. This is called Blackrod's Box. This is a pew-type area where Blackrod, the Queen's representative in the Palace of Westminster, sits during sessions of Parliament, during sessions of the House of Lords. Um, and they go over to have a look at this area here and um, they feel a strange sensation. Um, as they approach, they can feel the heat through the floor coming up through their boots, and they ask the housekeeper, what's going on? Why is there so much smoke? Why is this floor so hot? And she says, don't worry about it. It's just some guys downstairs burning tally sticks. And she moves on, moves them on to a, another part of the building. Um, just a word about the housekeeper. Um, the housekeeper of the House of Lords is actually somebody called Frances Brandish, who is a very... Uh, well-to-do lady, um, and unfortunately she held the housekeeper post as a sinecure post, that is she took the money and then delegated all the work to somebody else. Um, and the person delegated to was called Jane Wright. Unfortunately she was out of the building on the day of the fire and she had left her mother-in-law in charge. So her mother-in-law Elizabeth Wright is the person showing the tourists around at four o'clock in the afternoon. And I think what becomes clear from the public inquiry evidence that she gives in the days after the fire is that she really hasn't got a grip on what's going on, whether she's unfortunately going senile or whether there's some other reason. She gives some extremely strange answers to the questions of the public inquiry. And she's really much more concerned with taking tips for the tour than dealing with health and safety issues because that's the way that she and her family are getting their income. They're not paid to be housekeepers. They get their money from doing the tips. So... One of the themes of my book is about how the fire is, is really a sweeping away of the old way of doing things, a sweeping away, the bonfire of the sinecures, if you like. It, it led, amongst many other things, to a whole, whole new way of reforming uh, the way that civil service and posts in Parliament um, were created, no longer on a sinecure basis. Um, and it's, obviously this is a sort of symbol of the corruption of, of, of the times and so on. Okay, so that's four o'clock in the afternoon. The workmen have knocked off work now. They've finished burning the tally sticks, probably loading um, too many into the furnaces as they leave. Um, Mrs. Wright shuts up the chamber about five o'clock um, and everything's quiet for about an hour. What's probably happened uh, in the furnaces is that the copper lining of the flues has collapsed. The, the furnaces, as I said, are meant for coal. They're not meant for wood. Um, and they, um, they collapse because of the heat, the intense heat coming out from the wood. Um, and um, that then causes um, fissures in the brickwork to appear. The flames come up through the fissures and set fire to the, to the wooden floor above and, and the wooden pew, the, the blackrods box. Um, it's all quiet around six o'clock. A cleaner comes back from an errand. She sees a light flickering under the door of the House of Lords chamber and screams out, oh, good God, the House of Lords is on fire. Um, and there's panic within the palace. Uh, the, the hangings are going up inside uh, the, the Lords chamber, but they're all running around inside, not knowing quite what to do. Nobody alerts the commons, for example. And it's only um, at 6.30... <laughs> when an enormous ball of flame bursts out of the front of the palace and up through the roof, that people outside are alerted to the fact that something is very wrong um, at Westminster. And in fact, what's happened, and I think it's clear from, again, from the, uh, the evidence given, um, the manuscript of which is actually held here at TNA, 
um, what's clear is that um, a flashover has occurred. And I learned a lot about firefighting theory while researching this book. So I can tell you that for those of you who don't know what a flashover is, it's when the gases formed by a fire in an enclosed space reach such a heat that they then start to combust spontaneously all the items in the room um, and create a great big rolling ball of fire. And that's clear that that's what happens from eyewitness accounts. So that's about 6.30. So fighting the fire. Um, the fire was the most significant fire in London since 1666. Um, it was uh, absolutely enormous. Hundreds of thousands of people flocked to Westminster to see it. But you didn't need to be in Westminster to see it. You could see it from the top of the South Downs as Charles Barry, the future architect of the new Palace of Westminster, saw as he was coming back from Brighton, came over the top of the South Downs, saw this enormous fire, realised where it was and said, what a chance for an architect. And so it turned out. <laughs> the King and Queen at Westminster, they were sent telegrams very, very quickly about what was happening, but they didn't need to see the telegrams because they could actually see the fire on the horizon 20 miles away at Windsor. So first on the scene, um, this is just a, a little snapshot of um, what uh, firefighting looked like uh, in 1834. These are parish and local private insurance fire engines. So many of you will know that around this time, if you, if you um, wanted to protect your house from fire, you couldn't rely on any public service to do that for you. You had to pay a fire insurance company to do it for you. You put a fire plaque on the outside of your house, and that would indicate to the insurance company that you were insured and you paid your, uh, your dues, and they should go and put the, the fire out for you. So this is just giving you an impression of what um, any ordinary domestic fire in the early 1830s um, uh, excited interest. That's, what it, that's the sort of level of interest that even an ordinary fire um, would generate. Um, and this just shows some private insurance company uh, engines going there. But actually, in 1833, uh, in London, um, the London Fire Engine Establishment, the, Lon the LFEE, had been created. Um, and this is its boss, James Braidwood. Um, so 10 London private fire engine companies had got together pooled their resources and created a single consolidated but pr still private fire brigade for London. And they'd asked James Braidwood to come and head it up. And he'd been headhunted from um, the Edinburgh fire uh, establishment uh, where he'd been doing fantastic things in the previous 10 years. He'd created a consolidated company for Edinburgh. He's the firefighting, he's a father of fire, modern firefighting theory. Um, and... Um, uh, he brings a load of innovations to London firefighting in the years uh, right through to the 1860s. But this is his first major fire, and it's within the first year of his, his time in London. Um, so the parish and the, 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 the small private insurance company engines don't do any good because the fire has become so enormous so quickly at Westminster. And it's only when Braidwood arrives with his 13 fire engines from across London at about 7.30 in the evening... Um, that things start to take a slightly better turn. Uh, it's still absolutely drastic. He gets to the site and he realises that um, the House of Lords um, is completely gone. There's no point in trying to save it. It's too far gone. Um, and he draws an imaginary line um, across the palace. And anything north of it, that is Westminster Hall, he decides to save. And anything south of it, he thinks should perish. And that's really what's behind his strategy on the night of the fire. So what do fire engines look like around this time? Um, so they've got a, a tank of water here. Um, they have an inlet hose coming in here and an outlet hose there. 
They have paddles on the side. These are folded over like this at the moment, but they actually fold out. And you need volunteers on either side of the engine to push those paddles up and down constantly to draw the water in through here, suck it up from a fire plug in the street, which is attached to the water supply in the underground. Um, that'll suck up the water through here and then push it out through the hoses. So the firemen are there to direct the hoses and to fight the fire. They're not there to pump the engines. You need volunteers to do that. And the volunteers are paid in beer, so it's a popular thing to do, but it's also incredibly exhausting. Okay, so now on to some artworks of the fire. Uh, most of these are from the Parliamentary Works <coughs> of Art collection, but this one is actually a print that I, I own myself um, from my own collection. I've not seen it anywhere else. Um, and this gives, this is a very crude um, woodcut, as you can see, just giving an idea of the drama of the scene. Um, that first slide that I showed you, Old Palace Yard, and you can see here the whole frontage of the Lords is well ablaze and the Commons Committee rooms and Bellamy's are starting to smoke. So that's the view um, about 8 o'clock. This is the same view by a better artist, a much better artist. This is William Heath, a fantastic engraver, and I love this picture. It's really evocative. You can see the southwest wind that everybody comments on on the night, brisk southwest wind blowing the flames across the palace, right across the House of Commons, which is behind here, and across onto the gable end of Westminster Hall. You can see people hanging out of their house windows. Rich people were paying householders locally to um, a, a fee so that they could sit on the balcony and watch. Um, huge, huge crowds um, and um, a general sense of you know, awe and drama and the sublime. And a bit of a close-up here, and we get our first sense here that something absolutely desperate is happening to the parliamentary records and the public records that are stored in and around Westminster. Um, there are a couple of fire engines here being pumped by volunteers. There is a, um, a fireman here with an axe in his hand, going, probably going to go off and smash a window open. And we know that the maces, the two maces that, um, that are put in place at the beginning of each session, uh, whenever the Lords and Commons sit, they were saved by a fireman climbing onto the third floor with a ladder and retrieving them very bravely. Um, and there's this figure here as well. Can you, can you see who that is? What's that? It's a dog. Well done. It's him. Uh, this is Chance the Fire Dog, Chance the celebrity mascot of the London Fire Engine Establishment. Chance was originally a Spitalfields weaver's dog, um, and um, he uh, showed a marked inclination to turn up to fires. He was very fond of them, so the LFEE adopted him, and he followed them then uh, to every fire. He lived in their headquarters in Watling Street in the City of London. Um, and um, he liked you know, dancing in the water mains. He liked striding along burning beams. He had his portrait painted, as you can see, this again by William Heath. Uh, he had another portrait painted. Um, and Dickens knew about um, Chance as well. Dickens was probably at the fire. He was a parliamentary reporter at the time, um, and um, he talks about Chance uh, in one of his parliamentary sketches, compares him to an MP, uh, who was making a lot of noise and barking and running up and down as well on the night of the fire. Um, Chance, unfortunately, comes to a sticky end. He's um, a year after the fire. He dies, um, and he tries to go to one last fire, but he collapses on the threshold of the London Fire Engine Establishment headquarters. Um, he doesn't make it to the final fire, but the firemen love him so much that they uh, send him to a taxidermist to be stuffed. 
Um, but while he's there, the taxidermist realises because he's such a celebrity, he'd be on the cover of OK magazine every week if, if, if it were today, um, that um, he sells him on to a travelling fair once he's been stuffed um, because he's got a gold mine on his hands. And the firemen have to go off and grab him back from the, the showman. Um, and they put him in a glass case and he sits in his glass case at the Watling Street headquarters um, for several decades. And then I think in the 1880s, he's auctioned off for charity for a fireman's benevolent fund. Um, and we don't know where he is now. So if anybody sees a dog called Chance in an attic or a junk shop, please let me know. I'd really like to find him. Okay, so an, a third view of the view from, um, uh, from Abingdon Street across West, uh, Old Palace Yard. So this is Turner's view, just a watercolour, just a watercolour by Turner. Um, Turner was out on the night of the fire, as were about 40 other artists. This was the... This was a sight of a lifetime for them and for everybody in the crowd. And this, this, again, gives a huge sense of the drama of the occasion. And when people have heard about the fire, they often come out with a statement, oh, that's the one at which everybody clapped and cheered because Parliament was going up in flames. And actually, that's not the case. Um, they didn't clap and cheer because it was going up in flames. They clapped and cheered, or they, were, they clapped, they didn't cheer. There's no evidence that people cheered. Some people clapped, some people went ooh and ah a lot. Um, because this is such an e enormous event, such an amazing cinematic experience that it's almost like a theatrical performance for them. They've forgotten that this is a building with you know, people in it and possessions and fantastic artworks, and it's just become a spectacle for them. Um, and this picture by Turner, I think, gives a real impression of that, and that's today at Tate Britain, if anybody wants to see it. By about 10 o'clock, um, there are huge fears for Westminster Hall. Uh, you can see the fire at the far end, the south window there, um, and um, firemen having to be very, very brave go out onto the windowsill on the other side of the great south window and fight the fire, surrounded by fire on three sides. People are evacuating um, items from the Speaker's House, which is on the other side of this wall, and they're also getting up onto the... Uh, to the windowsills here to, to douse the, the great hammer beam roof, great masterpiece of medieval art, uh, to douse it with water so that it doesn't burn down. This is the view from the riverside. So this is the view from the Lambeth bank of the Thames. Um, and you can see here, again, the crowds on the bridges. People couldn't cross the bridges very, very early on on the evening because they were completely crammed with people. Um, and this just... Um, shows you the, the great floating engine of the London Fire Engine establishment in place there. Um, so the fire brigade had a, had a floating engine, a big, a big engine mounted on a barge which could pump endless quantities of water from the Thames. Great for fighting fires from the river. Unfortunately, it was low tide. So the engine couldn't actually make it upriver until one o'clock in the morning. And it was only making it upriver, um, plus a change in wind direction, plus the... Um, the efforts of all the volunteers that saved Westminster Hall here from the flames. And you can just see it sort of starting to, to lick the end there while St Stephen's Chapel, the House of Commons, goes up in flames there. And this is um, the first of Turner's very famous oil paintings of the fire. Uh, and this shows, in fact, the, the floating engine chugging its way up towards Westminster. Most people concentrate on fantastic drama of the picture but from our point of view from a documentary point of view we're interested in the floating engine there 
And that's just another close-up of the floating engine with its name on the outside, Sunfire. So when the Sunfire Company joined, consolidated with the LFEE in 1833, they brought the floating engine with them and it became part of the London Fire Engine Establishment's kit. So the damage of the fire, well again, if you read about the fire in many books, a couple of paragraphs perhaps, it says the whole palace was destroyed by the fire and that's not actually true. It was the central portion here um, and really the old, the old medieval apartments uh, of the palace. Um, the Lord's administrative offices were saved here. The law courts were principally saved there um, and parts here of the Speaker's House as well. And this is important from our point of view when we're looking at what happened to the public records on the night because there were public records stored in the law courts and there were parliamentary records stored here, um, Lord's records stored in the Lord's library basement there. But other records, the Commons records, were stored within the grey patch in the middle. So let's see what happened to them. So, first of all, the Commons Library is completely trashed by the fire. That's it there. It's a three-storey building, and the whole of the frontage falls in, and it just becomes a, a, a fiery shell. And um, this is really the story behind the destruction of the Commons records in 1834. We don't know exactly where they were stored, but I suspect that a lot of them were stored in the new Commons Library. This was only built in 1826. So I suspect there were quite a lot of them there. They may well have been a lot in the administrative offices within that grey central area as well. Um, and that's why they perished on the night of the fire. Um, there are very few survivals. We have one series of records called the House of Commons Journals, the most important series, in fact, of all Commons records. These are the records that show the proceedings of what goes on in the Commons each day, and they go back to 1547. And um, somehow they were saved. They don't show much sign today of having been scorched or bashed about, so I do wonder whether they weren't perhaps off-site somewhere or certainly outside the main body of the, uh, of the destruction. This is another survival, other than the journals, of which there are 231 surviving. Um, there are maybe another five records, I can count them on the fingers of one hand, five original records of the House of Commons before 1834, and this is one of them. This is, in fact, a wages book from the Sergeant-at-Arms office, um, and you can probably just see the date at the top there. It pretty much goes up to the, to the day before the fire, and somebody obviously grabbed it because it contained all the wages details that needed to be paid for the servants for that week. So uh, that's presumably why it was saved, and you can see it was horribly scorched and has since been repaired. So, um, I mentioned that the public records um, were actually in the palace, so there were significant quantities um, of records um, on the upper floors of the law courts block, because that's where the records of the augmentation office, part of the exchequer, um, were, and the augmentation office is the office that Henry VIII set up to deal with all the income coming in as a result of the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, and for some reason, they were in the upper floors here. Um, and um, they were thrown out of the uh, windows of the burning building. Uh, originally, they were put into baskets and lowered down. Then they pulled down the curtains and um, threw them into the curtains, bundled them up and threw them out. And then in the end, when um, the ar archivists hadn't got any, uh, anything else to use, they threw them out of the, the windows onto the uh, ground um, in St. Margaret's Street here. The Lord's records, as I mentioned, some were in the uh, 
Lord's Library. Others, including all the Acts of Parliament and things like Charles I's death warrant, were stored here uh, in the Jewel Tower, and that was originally part of the Palace of Westminster. Some of you who know Westminster may recognise this building. It's, if it were on this map, it's somewhere here. It used to be um, one of the corner turrets of the old palace precincts. It's now run by English Heritage. But it was, um, in 1834, and had been since the beginning of the 17th century, the repository for Lord's records, and it's attached to um, the residence of the Clerk of the Parliaments, who is the Chief Executive of the House of Lords. So that's how, how come the Lord's records survive. So we have a complete run of House of Lords records from 1497 onwards, and the earlier records of Parliament are here in the Chancery Collections. Um, but thank heavens the Lord's records were out of danger. They were out of the direction of um, the wind. The death warrant was saved on the night as well. Um, we know that because there's an eyewitness account of a labourer coming up to the Prime Minister who was, who was looking on, telling him uh, that the death warrant um, had been saved and he just laughed hollowly, apparently, at, the, at that. Um, and we also know um, a bit about how the records of Parliament were saved as well because Henry Stone Smith, who was a clerk in the, uh, in the House of Lords, um, arranged um, a human chain to get the records in the, the unburnt bits of the building as the fire was coming towards it, to get them out of the building um, and sent off to uh, local residences and so on. And this is his account, his account book, um, showing the payments to the labourers. Here are the labourers who've been carting materials out. And lots of other people gave their services for free, so these are just the people who were paid. Um, and these are just uh, the lines showing the days when people attended, not only the, the night of the fire, but then also the subsequent days, clearing stuff out and then actually putting stuff back in again to the unburnt bits of the building. And that's a very early survival, administrative survival for, for the House of Lords. So a few before and after pictures of the building. This is not a photograph. This is a, a charcoal drawing. But when I've shown it to other groups, they've said, what's that photograph? It's a really early photograph. Uh, it's not a photo. Um, so this is what the Commons looks like before the fire. So just keep your eyes on the three windows at the end there. And that's what it looks like afterwards. So what's happened is that... Uh, the ceiling put in by Wren and the floor has burnt away. The whole thing's collapsed in on itself. And it's revealed the medieval chapel of St. Stephen that was once there in all its glory. And people like Pugin, who were in the fire, the designer of the new palace, were absolutely raving at how beautiful this looked. And there's this idea that all the, all the later horrible corrupt accretions that had been added to Parliament, the parliamentary buildings, had been burnt away and it had got back to its authentic medieval self. Um, so people who liked Gothic ruins loved the fire. This is the painted chamber, um, again, um, a very important part of the palace with um, some very well-known um, paintings on the walls that were just starting to be understood and discovered uh, in the 1820s and 1830s. You can just see them here, but there are lots more under the whitewash here. This was originally Henry III's bedroom. Um, that, again, was very badly destroyed. If you keep your eye on the windows, again, at the far end there, you can see what happens. Again, the roof falls in, but the walls are very, very sturdy, and actually, this building is sturdy enough to be re-roofed and it becomes the temporary House of Lords uh, while the new palace is being built. So a view over St. Stephen's Chapel and over the cloister here, you can see um, a fire engine 
um, pumping away there and discarded hoses and things, but a very evocative view of this ruined palace. And the view, again, of Old Palace Yard the morning after, what's not perhaps immediately apparent from this is it's just a shell here. It looks quite complete, but these blank windows here, they're just empty. It's just a facade, and these are tottering towers here, completely gutted, and they're pulled down very, very quickly afterwards. And you can just see behind the, the old walls of the old House of Lords there. Um, and this, again, is also re-roofed, and that becomes the temporary House of Commons um, for about 14 years while the uh, new palace is built. There it is again, just the, those walls again for the Commons. This is the view from the riverside. Again, we've, that's the Commons Library again, the painted chamber. The shell of St Stephen's, that's just a facade and very, very rickety there. Salvage operations happen almost immediately. Contractors come in to take away the stone um, and it's sold off. Um, nobody dies in the fire, but a lot of people die during the salvage operations. Demolition happens by early 1835. You can just see here the painted chamber is being shored up, ready to become the new House of Lords. But St Stephen's Chapel, is, it's just got antiquaries in it and artists making final um, sketches of, um, of what it looks like before it's pulled down. Uh, and the, the site is raised, and the government competition, uh, and there are details here of the government competition in TNA, um, and also the plans that were um, put out um, for competitors to build the new Houses of Parliament. That competition uh, is announced in the summer of 1835, and the entries for the competition um, are also here at TNA in the Work 29 collection. And so rising from the ashes, so finally, this is the view... Um, of the palace um, as it looked um, probably around 1850. So the Victoria Tower here where we store the parliamentary records today um, is, um, is two-thirds <coughs> built, but you've still got the tiny little... It's been exaggerated for effect by this artist, but you can see the old palace just in the middle there as the new palace rises up around it. On the night of the fire, Francis Palgrave, who was the first keeper of, parliament, of public records... Um, was standing on, um, on the roof of the chapter house here at Westminster Abbey where Doomsday Book was, obviously again now at uh, the National Archives, begging the dean of uh, Westminster to move um, Doomsday Book and other precious exchequer records which were stored in uh, the chapter house into the nave of the abbey. And this gives a good example because it shows you quite how close the abbey actually is to the old palace and how much danger the public records were in on the night of the fire. So, out of the fire, well, a number of things came out of the fire. Second fantastic oil painting by Turner, this time from the Lambeth Bank. Um, a new London fire brigade, a public fire brigade for London, was created in 1866, but the first calls for it occurred after 1834. But it was only with the death of James Braidwood at the Tooley Street Fire of 1861 that they really got their act together and created, um, created the first public fire brigade. I mentioned Dickens. Dickens was at the fire and there's a whole part in my book where I discuss what, Dick, what use Dickens might have made of the fire in his work uh, and I think there's quite a lot of evidence in Dickens that, that there are um, parts, of, parts of his work which describe the fire. Um, but most importantly from our point of view um, today 
Um, the national records are protected. So I've talked about the public records and I've talked about the parliamentary records. What happened as a result of the fire? Well, the, rec- the public records on the night of the fire were being protected by the Record Commission, which is today what we would describe as a failing government department, um, a, a, a department that um, really was no longer fit for purpose, was horribly overspending, um, and a thousand-page inquiry in 1836 revealed how incompetent it was. That was swept away, um, and the Public Record Office was created uh, in its place, And the inquiry, that 1,000-page inquiry, goes into quite a lot of detail about what did and didn't happen on the night of the fire at Westminster and what the Record Commission did and didn't do. And they were censured for for the state in which they behaved on the night of the fire. And the the Royal Commission that was set up to consider legislation about setting up a public record office, its final report stated, nobody can be in any doubt of the danger to fire to our public records. So... Directly out of the fire of 1834 came the final push to create um, a public record office. Francis Palgrave, who'd been on the roof of Westminster Abbey, as I said, became its first keeper. Um, And at Parliament, um, we're not covered by the Public Records Acts. Uh, Parliamentary records were kept separately, but they were uh, built into this design here. The government competition for the new Palace of Westminster said that the palace had to include a fireproof repository for its papers and documents, and this was Charles Barry's solution to that. The Victoria Tower at the south end of the palace um, is um, uh, is Parliament's purpose-built archive repository with fireproofing. Like at Chancery Lane, it had fireproofing um, recommended by James Braidwood, who played a part in um, in deciding um, how the protection should be done. Um, so that's the outcome of um, the fire of 1834 in terms of the public records, and TNA. So that was a very quick whiz-through, slightly quicker than I expected. Um, thank you very much. This podcast was recorded live on the 18th of October 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>